Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. see you guys. So let me tell you why I got a duck in my hand. So there's a couple of signs that are on the floor uh, right over by the welcome table and then there's one kind of behind the wall where the uh, where all the, the audio tech stuff is. So there's a couple of signs on the floor that are there. They've got feet on them and they're made for you to walk up. We had to explain this to Dave Lang because it involves well, it involves technology and it involves uh, social media. So the whole idea behind it is you stand on it and it says, we wish you were here, adventure, and you take a picture of your feet and then you send it to somebody or you can stick it on Facebook, you can do whatever you want with it. That, that's all right, but I think we can make this a lot more fun. So if you've got funny stuff, here's what I want. I want the weirdest, funniest things you can possibly think of that when you send this to somebody, they go, what in the world is that a picture of? So we got some ducks, we got pigs, we got a couple of of slippers that are back there. I want hobbit feet. If you've got hobbit feet, come talk to me because I want to take my picture in hobbit feet. If you've got monster feet, like if you want to bring some in and let some people use those, we can have some fun with this. That's the whole idea behind it and you can help out with that. So that's that. All right. So I had a friend in college who uh, fell in love with a girl the first week of the year. So we, we got there, it was fall semester, and we walk in, we were sitting at lunch, and he came in, and we just started into our classes and stuff. I don't even know if we'd really gotten into our classes yet, but anyway, he walked in, he goes, I found the girl that I'm going to marry. We're like, really? Do you know her name? Like, do you, what, what do you actually know about her? I mean, we've been here, it's like three days, what's going on? And so this guy was absolutely smitten with this girl. The only problem was she wasn't quite so smitten with him. So he spent the next several months of that, uh, of that semester asking her out at least twice a week. At least twice a week, he would go up, and I'll give him credit. At least he had the courage to, to, to ask her out. He kept going up, and she kept coming up with even more creative ways of telling him no. And then finally, it was getting towards the end of the semester, and I walked into our, our student union, and we had some couches that were sitting there, and he was sitting on one of the couches, his head was kind of down, he was wringing his hands, and I mean, he was white, and he was sweating profusely, I mean, I thought he had a fever, I didn't know if he was sick or what was going on, and so I walked up to him, and I said, dude, what's, you look like you're going to pass out, what's wrong with you? And he just looked at me, he almost moaned the words out. And it was just three words. She said yes. (laughs) And he was kind of in a predicament. This guy had spent so much time trying to get a date with her, he didn't know what to do when she said yes. Like, it just completely unnerved him. He had no idea where to go. They never got married, to my knowledge. I I think they did go on that date, if I remember right. And I don't think it went anywhere after that. Yeah, I think a lot of us have a similar relationship with God. How many times have you cried out to God? God, where are you? God, reveal yourself to me. I'm here. Why aren't you here with me? I need you to show up. A lot, right? I mean, if you're like me, I've had lots of those moments where I had that conversation with God. Now, let me ask you this. Are you really ready when he does? 
You really ready for him to show up? It's kind of the, the big question that I want to explore through in this series. We really ready for God to show up? I mean, we, we say we are. We say we want him to. But if he did in that loud voice that we all wish with thunder behind it, you know, I mean, if he did in bodily form, I mean, if suddenly you looked around and he was sitting in the chair next to you, are you ready for that? I don't think most of us are. And, I, you know, I'll even go a step farther. I don't think, even though lots of us show up here week after week, I don't think lots of us, when we cry out like that to God, we actually expect him to. Yeah, I'd suggest that God probably shows up even more than we realize. It's just we're not really looking for him, and we don't really expect to see him, and so we miss him. I want to explore why that might be a little bit. So over the next four weeks, uh, we're, we're going to spend some time just looking at, at encounters in Scripture where God met people when they cried out for him. And I'll give you a little preview of what we're, we're going to discover Part of the secret, because you, you start to find patterns in godly people, and you start finding fat patterns in faithful people, and one of the patterns that I see in there is that they did expect him to show up, they were ready for it to happen, and because of that pattern, I would suggest to you that if you and I want to get the most out of God's presence, then we need to proactively prepare for that encounter. Otherwise, you... Uh, Otherwise, you end up on a, with a date, and you don't know what to do. And even know the story of King Josiah in the Old Testament, it's not a real long one. Uh, it's, it's stuck in the middle of a whole bunch of kings and their stories. You've probably heard of King David and King Solomon, right? I mean, those, those two names are a bit more familiar. This guy was one of their ancestors, and years later, he ruled over Judah. Um, maybe in the midst of this, it would help to do just a really quick, short history lesson. So King David, you know, what he was really famous for, he was, he was the guy who really brought all the tribes together, really turned Israel into a nation in the way that we think of as a nation, and, and he brought them to peace. That was the two big things that, that David accomplished. And while he had some major screw-ups in his life, um, he led people to follow God. Solomon was the son who took, uh, who took over after David. Solomon, Solomon after Solomon, it, it got ugly. You had ungodly kings, you had infighting, you had idolatry, and they went back and forth. It's almost like going back to the book of Judges where you see Israel just kind of going up and down and up and down, and they're close to God, and they're far away from God, they're close to God and far away. And so they do that for several hundred years. Fast forward to about 700 B.C., and there's a guy named Manasseh, and he reigns for 55 years, and he takes people far away from God. He moves the people back to the worship of, of Baal and Asherah, which were some of the idol, the idolatrous pagan gods that had been in the area before the Israelites had moved in. He created pagan temples with male and female uh, temple prostitutes. That's part of how they would worship. Um, and then he would he even encourage the practice of human sacrifice to Molech. Matter of fact, it records that he took one of his own sons and burned his own son alive in worship. Now, his oldest son, Amon, he reigned for two years after Manasseh, and he was so messed up that his own advisors rode up, rose up and killed him. There was a coup, and they killed him off, not because they wanted power, but just simply because he was such a bad guy. Josiah, his son, was crowned king after his father was murdered by his own advisors at eight years old. Can you imagine having an eight-year-old king? 
So look at how the book of 2 Kings starts off the description of Josiah. 2 Kings 21, let's look at verse 2 there in your listening guide. It said, he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, and he followed the example of his ancestor David, and he didn't turn away from doing what was right. You might want to underline that last one. He didn't turn away from doing what was right. That's a pretty good forward to your biography, right? I mean, this is... This is the beginning of his story, and this is the way that they're laying it out for us. Why was he such a good king? Well, if you read through the account, by the time he gets to about his 18th year, he's starting to really take on. Obviously, at eight years old, he isn't really ruling as king. He's got other advisors who are doing that. By his 18th year of being king, though, he's really kind of taken things on, and he is, he is king at that point. And he's, he's kind of moving his own reforms. He starts a series of reforms to turn people back to God. And the first thing that he does is sort through the ruins of the temple to restore it. Why? Because his grandfather and his father had persecuted the priests of God, and they'd actually taken the temple that was supposed to be the worship of Yahweh, and they were worshiping idols in it. Subsequently, they had lost their Bibles. Obviously, they weren't like the Bibles we think of. They were scrolls, but just go with me for a minute. Can you imagine an entire nation of people and no Bibles? Like... (laughs) most of the people that I know who haven't been to church in the last 40 years still have a King Jimmy Bible sitting around somewhere, right? I mean, you got like Grandma and Grandpa's old big one, you know, the one that weighed like 70 pounds. It's sitting there on the coffee table. It's got some people's names written into it when they were married and all that. At least we've got those laying around. This is a point where they don't have any, the entire nation, no one for a couple of generations has heard or read the word of God. At Josiah's command, Hilkiah, the high priest, he's sorting through the rubble. He finds, the, he finds a scroll that has on it the, the book of law. So that's the, the first five books we have in our Old Testament. And immediately he reads through it and he sends it off to the king. He's like, you've got to read this. Josiah reads it. He is broken. He is distraught over what he finds because he's finally confronted with just how far out of bounds his kingdom and his kingship is, how how wicked his dad and his grandpa were. And so he immediately calls the priest back in. He goes, hey, you got to go check in with God. What are we going to do? Like, go ask him what, we're, we're in trouble here. Go ask God what we're supposed to do, because we have not been, we're not in bounds here. We have not been the people he called us to be. Josiah cries out for God, and God shows up. God speaks to him. God, God is there. And in essence, he tells them, you guys have been very, very naughty, and if you keep moving in the direction that you've been going under your dad and grandpa, I'm going to have to allow you to experience the consequences of living outside the bounds of where I can bless you and take care of you. Look at how Josiah responds. 2 Kings 23, verses 1 through 3. Again, they're there in your listening guide. The king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. So basically all the leaders of all the people in the entire nation, he he brings them together. The king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So everybody is there. He's gathered uh, most of the whole nation together there. And what does it say? Along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And there the king read to them the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. He read it himself. 
That's actually kind of remarkable, right? I mean, we think of kings and you got a herald and somebody else. They do it. He takes on a responsibility. I'm king. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to own this. And he lets everybody know, here's, here's what God's word says, and here's how far out of bounds we are. Then look what it says, verse 3, the king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. So he does this first personally himself, right? He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. And in this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. And then all the people, because he's leading them, he leads them and says, all right, I'm doing it. You guys join in the covenant. And it says all the people pledge themselves to the covenant. He starts the cleansing process. Starts in Jerusalem. He moves all the way through his kingdom, destroying the shrines and the altars and the, getting rid of all the false priests throughout the country. He gets rid of the bad, but he goes on from there and he does something even more important. Look at 2 Kings 23, verses 21 through 23. King Josiah then issued this order to all the people, you must celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as required in this book of the covenant. Now, Passover is like the central thing. Like for us, Passover is Easter, right? For us, Easter really is. I know Christmas tends to get maybe a little more, uh, a little more attention, but really for us, Easter is the, the big holiday. Easter is the one we come back to and we remember God keeping his promise. We remember God's salvation. Well, that, that was Passover to the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament. They hadn't done that in a long, long time. Matter of fact, look at what it says in verse 22. There hadn't been a Passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in Israel or throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah, which, by the way, that includes David. For the first time in generations, people aren't just being kind of not bad, right? That, that's where most of us are shooting for. I'm trying kind of not to be bad. I mean, I know I'm not perfect, so I'm going to try to not be as bad as I can be. They're not just doing that, they're actually worshiping. Don't miss that. Getting rid of the bad isn't enough. God calls us to do more than just turn from the bad. That's, that's not even the bottom of the bar. That's not even like the, the minimum bar. He calls us back to him. And so how is Josiah remembered? Look at verse 25, 2 Kings 23. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses, and there's never been a king like him since. Can I be gut level honest with you? I am not perfect. I'm aware of so many flaws in my life. In my heart of hearts, man, my prayer is that my ancestors remember me half of that. <laughs> that would be amazing to be remembered like that. You know, as they look through our family, I pray they see me as an imperfect man who loved God with all his heart and served him well. I can't imagine a better legacy. So how? Josiah had all the excuses, right? I mean, all the ones that we give, he had. Bad family, yeah, jacked up neighborhood, early fame and riches, should have ended up in the tabloids. Instead, he reached out to God and God responded. And in, in essence, God told him this, you got to make a choice. And that choice is going to impact not just you, but people for generations. What are you going to do? What made Josiah so special? 
Why did he respond when the rest of his family didn't? His grandfather didn't. His dad didn't. When you start looking at faithful people encounters with God, again, you start finding patterns in their character. And there seems to be one in particular that I think is crucial. It's at the center of one of Jesus' more famous parables. Uh, That parable you can find in Mark 4, verses 3 through 8. We we often uh, talk about it as the parable of the soils. This is how it goes. This is how Jesus told it. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed, and as he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plant soon wilted under the hot sun since it didn't have deep roots. It died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants, so they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted and grew and produced a crop that was 30, 60, even a hundred times as much as had been planted. Now, what's the soil that Jesus is talking about in this parable? What is it? It's our heart. This is kind of the key idea. When God shows up, the condition of my heart is going to matter. We all cry out to God, God show up, right? We want him to show up. Well, when he does, if our heart isn't where it needs to be, if we haven't haven't proactively worked on our heart, guess what? We may very well miss that encounter. We're certainly not going to get out of it what we should. Now, obviously, we're not talking about the meat muscle that we've got beating in our chest. Some of them, by the way, are doing a better job than others in here. We're, we're talking about the condition of our soul, the condition of our mind, the, our attitude to receive and understand and respond when God shows up. Let me ask you this. You probably asked this question yourself. Why do so many people get confronted with good advice and then not listen, not apply that good advice? Not take seriously something that may be really, really important in their life. Why? We all see it. We all do it. Why? If I can, I'd like to modernize his message just a bit. And in your notes, you kind of see his explanation as it goes on in Mark 4 there. But soil one, I would just characterize this way. Who I hang out with, who I spend my time with, that's going to affect my heart. You want to pay Pay attention to the condition of your heart. Look at the people who you've got around you. Some of us get great advice, man. We get wise counsel, the the right direction. Then we let the wrong people, whether they be a close friend, maybe even a family member, or maybe some quote-unquote expert on YouTube, you know, social media influence us into going in a direction that we shouldn't be going in. Do you really know who is influencing your life? You know, even that word today in our culture is probably one of the most overused words we've got, influencer. Everybody wants to be an influencer. And actually, it's probably good that we've recognized the fact that we are all influenced and we are all influencers. So who's influencing you? Man, if you haven't done an audit on the voices that are coming into your life, whether they be through a speaker or whether they be face-to-face, you ought to do that. Soil number two, I would just say this. Bitterness, hurt, and pride, they damage our heart. Bitterness, hurt, pride, they can create walls that keep us from hearing and putting truth into practice. 
They can keep our roots shallow. It's just like, it's like living on that rock and you got a little bit of soil, you know, you kind of got the smile on, but underneath, man, it's just hard. Your heart's hard because you've been through some stuff because you got some, some stuff that you haven't worked through. There's some anger there. There's some bitterness. There's some hurt. There's some pride, and that keeps our roots from being, uh, from, they, it keeps them shallow, and it keeps them undernourished. Soil number three, I would characterize this way, distractions and worries, they choke out my heart. Humans have never existed in it. You know, every generation thinks that we've got it worse than anybody's ever had it in the world. Eh, it just seems to be human nature. This really is true, though. Never in the history of the world have humans existed where they are confronted with so much information about so much brokenness that they can't personally affect or deal with. Nobody's ever experienced that the way that we experience that. I I just tell you straight up, I don't believe we were made for 24-hour news cycles where it's just constantly getting pumped in. We can't handle it all. And then we've got a tendency to add in all kinds of other things. And maybe some of those things aren't necessarily bad. Maybe we would look at them and go, eh, you know, they're okay. Or maybe they're even, quote, unquote, good things, but they're not the best things for us in this moment. They're not the wisest things in this moment. They're not the things that are actually moving us towards God. It's easy to let the thorns and the weeds grow up around us, the distractions, the worries to choke out the direction that we're supposed to go. The the fourth soil is the one we're all shooting for, and that's the one that allows us to get the most out of our encounters with God, and and that is, is that cultivated hearts produce fruit. Our region knows all about cultivated soil. We... We've we got industry devoted to it. We've, we've got lots and lots of farmers, farmers who for generations have worked to, to work the soil, right? Get the rocks out, shove them all out to the edges of the field, spray the weeds and the thorns, enrich the ground, make sure the soil's prepared for the seed to accomplish. The one thing, by the way, farmers don't have control over. Farmers can do everything else. The one thing they can't do is they can't make the seed sprout and they can't make it grow and they can't make it bear fruit. Only God can do that, but their responsibility is what? Get the soil in the best condition possible for God to work in that seed. They can't make it happen, but it's their responsibility to give it the best opportunity to do so. And that's the, that's the responsibility we've each got in our own lives in our hearts, to cultivate our hearts. So how do we have a heart like Josiah's? I just want to give you a few thoughts as I read through his, uh, his story here. First thing is, some of us may need to choose a different path than our past. We'll start with the very first thing Josiah did right. He chose a different path than his dad and his granddad did. It's been a couple of generations in his family since anybody really followed God, even cared about God. You know, generational sin, that's a real thing. And a lot of us struggle with some stuff that is not written into our DNA. It's simply things that we learn from either the family that we grew up in or from the the little culture that we grew up around. It's been ingrained into us. We've all got some sin that we've learned Maybe it's some passive aggressive uh, behavior in relationships. Maybe it's a lack of boundaries or a lack of respect for other people's boundaries. Maybe it's a way with coping with stress or hurt or anger. 
met a lot of people who feel trapped either by their family's reputation or learned behavior or their own past choices. Let me just encourage you with this. I don't care what you've done up to the point that you're sitting at this table right now listening or online or wherever it is you're at. Wherever you are, your past does not have to define you. That is one of the greatest promises that we have in Christ. Look at the way Paul, if you read through Corinthians, by the way, I know lots of people think they read through the early church, they're like, they were all perfect. Man, they were a bunch of screw-ups. Corinthian church especially, they had a bunch of weird stuff going on in that church. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says this to him though. He lists off a whole bunch of things that are just, just complete ungodliness. A lot of bad choices, a lot of hurt. And he says, some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed and you were made holy and you were made right with God. In other words, you are not defined by that anymore in Christ. Second thing I, I see in Josiah's life is we need to really be careful about our advisors. Again, you've probably noticed we tend to surround ourselves with, with people who are going through the same situations that we tend to be going through and will give us kind of the advice that we want to hear. Can't tell you the number of times I, I've been talking to somebody who's in marriage counseling and they're like, yeah, you know, it's funny, all my entire group of friends, we're all having marriage problems and we're all about ready to have a divorce. Surprise! Like birds of a feather flock together. We tend to do that. We, and, and as we get into areas of brokenness, you know what we tend to do? Not hang out with the healthy people. We tend to find the people who are kind of unhealthy like us. Josiah's people actually did him a really big favor. Josiah's dad was such a bad guy. Again, his own advisors killed him. The people said, this, enough is enough. Like, all right, he was a bad dude, but we can't allow a coup just to kind of go unanswered. And so they had all of, all of the people who were a part of that coup, all of the advisors to, to Amon and probably ones that were inherited from his dad because his dad had been king for, what, say 55 years? They, they put them all to death. Josiah at eight years old, it was a clean slate. It was a brand new set of people because the people rose up and said, this is enough is enough. We've got to get rid of this. We've got to start over. He didn't inherit those same advisors who had been around for his dad and his granddad. Very often what happens is we start moving towards healthier choices in God and the people who are comfortable with the old version of us, what happens? They become some of our big stumbling blocks, right? That can even include other believers who may be immature themselves. I've seen that happen a lot of times. It's easy for good choices to get strangled out by the wrong influences in our life. And again, can I add, these may not even be human advisors. Be careful of the media you consume, how much you listen to. Be careful of the conspiracy theories and the sheer amount of stuff out there to be worried and anxious and worked up over. Sometimes it's stuff, again, it's not necessarily bad. It's just not wise for you in this moment of where you're at, and it's distracting you from what's most important and where you're supposed to go. If you want a heart that's cultivated and ready for God to show up, be really wise with who and what influences you. Look at Proverbs 16, 13. This is out of the message. Good leaders cultivate honest speech and they love advisors who tell them the truth. And with that said, let me give you one other little caveat. 
Make sure, lots of us have people, we're like, well, they speak the truth. Don't just have people around you who speak their truth into your life. Make sure that you've got people who know God's truth and are willing to speak God's truth into your life. There's a difference. Third thing, I need to know and accept God's word. Again, one of the most profound and powerful things Josiah does is he invites God's word back into his throne room. And not only that, he listens to it and he responds to it. Some of us show up for church, but we aren't in God's word. Some of us, we listen to it or we read it, but we don't really let it sink in and affect us going along with our soil theme. Look at James 1.21. Get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept God's word. Uh, Accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. So many of us cry out, God, show up. But we're not willing to take the time to actually have a conversation with him using the way that he primarily speaks to us, which is his word. Don't yell, God, show up if you're not spending time reading your Bible. I don't know how else to say it. Fourth thing, I need to own my own brokenness. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. You know, we got a thing in our culture now that we don't want anybody to feel bad. We don't want anybody to feel sorrow for things in their life. Sometimes that's a good, healthy thing. It says there's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. You know, as much as our our culture talks about empathy, pretty much everything that we see modeled in our culture is actually driven off sympathy. And an awful lot of it is nothing more than virtue signaling. And that's exactly what God says I'm not interested in. God isn't looking for you to punish yourself, beat yourself up in guilt. Yeah, I know some of you were taught that. But that's not what he's looking for. Guilt's designed to be an indicator of pain in your life, right? So if I take a lighter and I light it right now and I stick my finger over it, what's going to happen? I can tell you what, because I've done it I don't know how many times, right? It's going to hurt, at least most of it. I cut myself here and cut a nerve so I can't feel that part of my finger, so I got to make sure it's on that side. So anyway, when I, it's going to burn, right? Why did God do that? Pain is an indicator there's something wrong in my life and I need to move my finger, otherwise it's gonna smell bad. And that's one of the first indicators. Man, smell of burning skin is terrible, right? That's why God gives us that because I'm not supposed to stay in the danger zone. I'm not supposed to stay there and go, well, you know, this pain thing, you know, this is kind of a great place to be. We weren't designed for that. Can I just tell you this? Guilt is not a place God designs you to stay in. God's desire is not that you sit and feel guilty all the time. Guilt's designed to be the prompt that tells us we need to make a change. There's an action that needs to be taken. Brokenness and repentance, humility in the face of wrong is very, very different than guilt. You gotta learn the difference to grow and respond to God. Psalm 51, look at verse 17. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You won't reject a broken and repentant heart, God. Let's talk about repentance for a minute. Number five, my response is gonna require a covenantal choice. 
All right, so I got the indicator. What am I going to do with that? This is what God's interested in, life change. And life change starts with a covenantal choice. You know the difference between a covenant and a contract? We don't, we kind of use those words interchangeably today. But uh, if you look at the actual definitions, there's something different between the two. Contracts are, are primarily concerned with property exchange. Covenants are about connecting two parties relationally through certain agreements, through uh, responsibilities, through here, here's how I'm going to live and here's how I'm going to be. Contracts are designed in what each party gets out of the deal. Again, covenants spell out who I'm going to be, who I'm going to live as. Josiah chooses a different direction than his past. He picks the right advisors. He listens to and he responds to God's word. He's convicted of how far out of alignment he and his people are with God. And he returns back to the covenant God had called he and his people to. And then after decision comes actions. We've got to put our heart's choices into action. James 1.22, don't just listen to God's word. You've got to do what it says. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. The action a repentant heart focuses on is kind of twofold. So one is you start moving the bad out, right? He goes through and he does all his reforms. He's cleansing the land. At some point, we've got to look and go, all right, if I'm out of bounds, I need to, I need to move back out of the bad, right? And this is usually what we focus on. It's what a lot of parents focus on. And can I encourage you, parents, don't just always focus on getting the bad out of your kids. This is what religion focuses on. Some of you are convinced that God wholly cares about the bad stuff in your life. Can I tell you a secret? God is far more concerned about you being holy and righteous than he is you being not bad. Let me say that again because that's actually a really powerful thing. God is more concerned about you being holy and righteous than he is you being not bad. Not bad is not God's goal for us. When you focus only on the bad, you end up in a really depressing place. And that crushes us because we're not perfect. We'll never get all the bad out. We're not capable of it. If we were, we wouldn't need Jesus. Here's what you got to focus on. The godly end. Can I just encourage you, focus more on being godly than on not being bad? Man, that'll change your whole life. Some of you, that's a, it's a brand new revelation because you were always taught God just didn't want you to be bad. God wants, God wants you to be like him. I'm not being flippant here about brokenness in our lives. We just spent a lot of time about how to handle that. What I am saying is that a heart that's directed towards God isn't focused on not being bad, it's focused on being like him. We got several more weeks of, of looking at different people's encounters with God and how can we, we can be ready for God to show up in our lives. Today, if nothing else, I just want to get across this, that what I do in preparation for God's arrival is going to guide my response. We all want God to show up. Let me just encourage you, do the groundwork that'll allow the interaction to be as fruitful as possible. And that means we've all got to tend the garden of our heart. We've all got some soil to cultivate. And I guarantee none of us have done it enough yet. We've all got some work to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for loving us so much 
that you are willing to show up over and over and over and over and over again in our lives. And you do that a lot of different ways. Sometimes you show up through people. Sometimes you show up that, that voice. Maybe we can't hear it, but we know it. The Holy Spirit speaking to us from within. But most of the time you do it through your word. Father, so I just pray this. I, I pray that you will help us to be faithful. Father, you'll help us to have open hearts. Where there's any place where we need to get the bad out, Father, reveal that stuff so we can work on that. But Father, also help us to cultivate the soil of our hearts by being more like you. And some of us don't even know where to start in the midst of that, so make it real clear. Help us to know what our next steps are. For some people, that may be accepting you. For some people, that may be following through in obedience and baptism. For some people, that may be dealing with an addiction or a hurt, or maybe there's some bitterness back there, some guilt, or some things that just need to be wiped away because they've hardened the soil of who we are. Father, whatever it is, whatever our next steps are, I just simply pray you'd help us to be faithful in taking them towards you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We know we can depend on you because you keep your promises. We know you love us because you showed up. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.